Well, happy Easter, everybody. How you doing? You doing all right? Some of you are not so sure yet. Uh, hopefully this and the rest of our service will be a blessing to you. Hey, it's Easter weekend. It's Easter Sunday, and we're so excited that you're here. I've been praying for you, preparing for you. And, uh, you know, anyone who has any affiliation with church or Christianity or anything like that whatsoever normally shows up to a service of some sort or at this day of the year, on this day of the year. And so attendance at church kind of almost doubles. And so pastors all across the country right now are very excited because they actually have a bigger crowd to speak to today, and so I'm one of those pastors, so I'm delighted that you're here today. You know, maybe you came today because it's tradition, kind of like wearing pastel colors and eating a ham and doing an Easter egg hunt or something like that. Anybody do your hunt yet? Yeah? Did you do it yet? Do it early? You do it after service? Okay. How many of you, how many of you uh, despise Easter egg hunts? Anybody willing to, to admit that? I will. I don't like them, not at all. <laughs> Already sat through two of them, didn't participate in either one. <laughs> My wife calls me a Scrooge, but uh, anyway, uh, I don't know what's wrong with me, but uh, yeah, maybe you'll do yours. How many of you, are, you know, just will go home today and actually have a ham? That's kind of tradition. Will you eat a ham today? My mother-in-law makes a sweet ham. Thanks, Mom, if you're here today. It's awesome. We had ours last week uh, because actually after the service, we're headed to Nicaragua. Isn't that crazy? My family, uh, we're going to go there for a week on the mission trip. We support a ministry there called Hope Road Nicaragua. Very excited about that. We'll be spending seven days. So if I bolt right after the service here, that's where I'm headed to. Uh, but very excited about that. Anyway, why are we at church today? Some of us are here today because it's, tr because it's tradition. Some of us are here today to avoid guilt. Okay? Let's just be honest. It's that weekend, and your mom's going to ask you, did you go to church later on? And you're going to say, yes, mom, I did, or yes, grandma. And grandmas are the worst, aren't they? And so you're here today to kind of avoid all of that, you know, guilt, and, you know, at least I went on Easter and that deal. And then, but there are some of you here today that you're actually here because you know that there's something sacred, something holy, something special about the Easter weekend. And you're drawn into it, you know it's important, and you know it's significant. We're going to talk about that today. My hope and prayer is if you are a believer in Christ, you're a follower of Christ, is that what you hear today will give you a greater appreciation for what Christ has done for you, and you'll fall deeper in love with him. For those of you who are here and you're a skeptic or you're a doubter or maybe you're an atheist or agnostic or something like that, maybe you're even of a different faith, my hope and prayer for you today is that you'll hear something that clicks and makes sense, that you will maybe take a step closer to faith in Christ. Maybe even today you'd put your faith in Christ as your Savior. That's kind of the way we've been praying as a staff all week. And so we're excited about that. We're just very open and honest about that. We believe Jesus is the source of life. Anybody else? Anybody else? Yeah. So that's our hope, is that you would meet him through uh, the music and through the talk here today. We've been talking about this, this idea of dying to live. It's a series we've been in for the last two weeks. We're wrapping up today, dying to live. It's a, we've talked about the spiritual paradoxes of, this, uh, of, the, of, the, of basically of the, of the Christian life. And today I want to talk about another paradox. A paradox is basically a commonly held belief that is actually not true. The opposite is true. And so the one I want to talk about today is this idea that good people go to heaven. That good people go to, get to heaven. That's the, in your notes there. I want to talk about this idea. When you ask the average American person, are you going to go to heaven when you die? What they will say, generally, generally about 80% of the time, is, yeah, I'll go to heaven when I die. And what they're basing their answer on is this, this theological truth or this, this spiritual truth that, that God basically, basically accepts good people, that he's a fair God and he's a just God, that in the end, I'm a pretty good person, generally speaking. I mean, I don't rob banks, I don't go around killing people, I'm not a member of ISIS, right? So we're not that terrible people. And so in the end, I know I've done some things wrong, but I'm generally a good person. And 
and God's pretty fair, and so if I died, I'd probably go to heaven. That's kind of that's the way 80% of Americans would answer that question. You know, if you would die today, would you go to heaven? Does that sound pretty familiar? Some of you actually believe that today. It's like, yeah, you know, if I died when I left Easter uh, church service today, I'd, I'd probably go up before I got, before I got some ham. <laughs> probably go to heaven. Um, why? Because I'm a generally a good person. Now, where does this belief come from? This belief, this, 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 this belief comes from the way our world works. Think about it with me for a second. From the time we are born in our homes, let's just go in our homes. When we're born, if you behave well as a good little boy, your mom and dad, you know, kind of reward you and they treat you well and they're always oh, such a good little obedient boy, little, you know, girl. And so, you, you know, you, everything's go well for you. And if you're a bad, what happens in your house? If you had decent parents, you know, they bring what? They bring some discipline down on you. Anybody else have a parent like that? You know, one time my mom broke a ruler on my butt. It's amazing. She smacked me so hard. Yeah, I wasn't, you know. Anyway, I won't go on all that. But so if you're good, you get rewarded. If you're bad, you get in trouble, right? And then, and then you go into, you know, the, the idea of, of Christmas time. You know, and my, my dad would say this all the time. You know, he would say, you know, you better be good for goodness sake. You know the, how the song goes, right? You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Because Santa Claus is coming to town. He's making a list. He's checking us twice. He's going to find out who's naughty or nice, right? You know that song. I know that song because the idea was if you behave well, you're going to get some presents. And if you don't, if you're on the naughty list, what happens? Well, my dad told me that you get a bag of reindeer poop. That's what you get. And I'm like, that sounds terrible. And so I didn't want that. I wanted a lot of presents. And so, you know, you have to be good and good little boys get rewarded. And, you know, and then you go into school and it's the same thing at school, you know. Remember growing up in kindergarten, first grade? You know, if you did well and you, you behaved, behavior, at least in the school I went to, was very important. You weren't allowed to talk. You had to be a good little boy. Good little, and you had to pay attention and you had to get things straight. And so if you did, you got rewarded. And if you didn't, you got in trouble. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and if you, were, if you were smart, you got rewarded. And if you weren't so smart, you, you got put in a different group. You remember the groups? In our, in our first grade, it worked like this. There was the Tom group and there was the Jerry group. <laughs> remember Tom and Jerry? Jerry was the smart one because he always outwitted Tom. You remember the cartoon? Guess what group I ended up in? That's right. I ended up in the Tom group, right? Now they did that so that you wouldn't feel bad as a child. It's like, oh, we're in the Tom group. We all love Tom. Tom's fun, right? And all the smart kids are over there in the Jerry group. Well, the kids knew what was up with that. And so we all looked at each other in the Tom group. We're like, yeah, we're, we're, we're the not so smart ones, aren't we? Yep, that's right. <laughs> And, and the Jerry kids, they're over here, they're looking at us like, you idiots. I mean, and so we ended up feeling bad anyway. But, but so, you know, if you, if you weren't so smart, you got put in this group over here. And if you were smarter, you got elevated into honors and so on and so forth. And it goes all the way through high school and all that stuff, even on into college, right? You get all scholarships if you're smart and all that stuff. And then there's the ECAs. What are ECAs? Extracurricular activities. They're of the devil. If you have children... <laughs> Anybody have children, <laughs> right? Drive you crazy, right? Because you're talking about practices and games and, and shows and, and concerts and oh my Lord, heavens, right? You're going all the time. And now when you first start out with your ECAs, as your kids are younger, right? Everybody gets a trophy, right? The Good Sportsmanship Award and everybody gets an award. Even if you lose, you get an award. <laughs> but then as you get older, right? When you get older, what happens? You have to perform well. And if you don't perform well, what happens? You, ended up, you end up getting left behind or cut from the team or you don't make the squad or whatever happens. Why? Because it's performance-based. If you don't perform, you get cut. And so that's how it ends up going with your ECs. And then the same thing carries over in work, in our work life. 
Isn't it, isn't it true that if you don't perform well in your work life, you know, you get overlooked for the promotion or whatever it is and somebody else gets the promotion because they're doing well or their numbers are better or whatever it's go, whatever's going on so they get the raises? And so we look at our whole life. Our whole life from birth is based on this idea of if, if you do well, if you perform well, you get rewarded and if you don't, you get either cut or overlooked or, 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 or fired or whatever. And so it makes complete sense why we would take all of this the way the world works and we would just transfer it onto how God might relate to us and doesn't it make sense that we would say you know what God probably judges us on the same you know scale it's like if we're if we perform well or halfway you know decent now we always think that God's going to be more merciful than 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 anything else because he's kind and he's loving right so it's like well I know I mess up but he'll he'll overlook those things and in the end you know he'll look at my performance and he'll say you you may come into heaven when you die makes complete sense here's the here's the paradox You can gain God's favor. You can have eternal life. You can go to heaven when you die, but it does not come the way you might think. In fact, in your notes there, no amount of personal goodness, zero, no amount of personal goodness can earn you God's favor. That might work, it might work that way with your coach or your teachers or your boss or somebody else in your life, your parents. You might be able to earn their favor but with, with, with good performance, but it does not work that way with God. The Bible says in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, that there's no one who's righteous, not even, how many? Not even one. Not Mother Teresa, not Billy Graham, not the most spiritual, holiest person you know in your life, not your grandmother. Not one person is righteous enough for God to say, oh my goodness, we got one. We got a special one here that follows all the laws and all, the, all my ways. And some of you are thinking, no, wait a second. I thought that God gave us the Ten Commandments so that we can kind of figure out how to be good. Doesn't that make sense? You know, thou shalt not lie, thou shalt not covet, thou shalt honor your father and mother, thou shalt not commit adultery, you know, have no other gods before me, don't make any false, you know, witness or, or anything like that, right? Is that one of them? I think it's one of them. Anyway. <laughs> The Ten Commandments. Aren't the Ten Commandments there to help us figure out how to gain God's favor and how to be good? Isn't that what you've been told? That's not what they're there for. See, the Ten Commandments are kind of like this level. I don't use levels because I don't fix anything. (laughs) (laughs) This is not my level. (laughs) But you use a level, so I'm told, you use a level when you're like trying to hang a picture or figure out if a table is level or something like that, and you're working on something, and you put this on there, and you say, oh, is it level? Oh, we got a little bit more this side. The law, the Ten Commandments, is like this level. The Ten Commandments just basically reveal what reality is, like this level does. But the level cannot fix the picture. The level cannot fix the wood, the table, whatever it is you're trying to make level, the floor. You have to put the level down, and then you have to take some other tool, which I don't have or own, (laughs) to fix the problem. Does that make sense? Uh, let me give you another example if, if that didn't work for you. The, lev- the, the law is like this mirror. The law just simply reveals to me what's wrong with my face. <laughs> Some of you used the mirror this morning. You got up and you were like, wow, we got a lot of work to do. It's Easter Sunday. Let's... <laughs> We got the dark circles, we got some, you know, whatever, we got, to, we got to do some stuff here, right? But here's what you didn't do, here's what you didn't do. You didn't take your mirror and start saying, I know what I'll do, I'll just fix it. It's like a... I got a greasy face. 
The reason you didn't do that with the mirror is because that's not what mirrors do. Mirrors just reflect reality, and that's what the Ten Commandments do. The Ten Commandments just reveal what the situation is in our soul. Let me give you, let me give you a verse, Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Paul said, there's no one that can ever be made right by doing what the law commands. That's not what the law is for. The law simply, what? Say it with me. Shows us how sinful we are. Oh my gosh, there's a lot of work that needs to be done here. And then we put the mirror down, and then we go get our utensils, whatever it is we need, tweezers or makeup or cover-up or whatever we have to do to fix this, right? That's what the purpose of the Ten Commandments is. You with me? Say yes. Now, we look into the Ten Commandments, we find out very quickly is that we can't keep them very well. We find out the reality is that we're very sinful people, even the best of us. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, Paul said this, two verses late, a couple verses later, for everyone has sinned. How do we know that? Just look at the law. You ever tell a lie? Thou shalt not lie. Anybody? Some of you are lying right now because you're not raising your hand. <laughs> we all fall short of God's glorious standard. There's no one who is righteous, not even one. Does that make sense? We need help. Good people do not go to heaven. Now, let me say something that is going to sound like a contradiction, okay? And I promise you that it's not. I'll explain what I'm talking about. Hopefully, it comes clear. I just got done telling you that no one is righteous, not even one. The, the Ten Commandments are there to show us how sinful we actually are. No one meets God's standard. Now, let me say this in your notes. On the other hand, you have to be really good to go to heaven. I mean, perfect. You and I must be perfect in order to go to heaven. See, well, that sounds like a direct contradiction to what you just said, that good people don't go to heaven. I know, I know. Let me explain. James, the brother of Jesus, wrote a book called James. Pretty cool, right? Name it after himself. <laughs> James said this. For the person who keeps all of the laws, like all 10 of them, and actually there were 666 verses, 663, I think, total, but we'll just go with the 10. For the person who keeps all of the laws, except how many? So this is a pretty good girl, okay? This is a pretty good guy. They've done, they've done everything, 99% of, uh, of stuff they've done right, and they break one law. Watch what James says. This person is as guilty as the person who has lived like Adolf Hitler. <laughs> That's basically what that says right there, because he broke, he broke them all. Don't you agree? And now, now to us, they go, wait a second, that's crazy. You're saying if I'm a pretty good person, I'm in the same boat in terms of my relationship with God as Adolf Hitler. That's exactly what I'm saying. Because the standard for getting into heaven is not, hey, be 99% good. You have to be 100% good. So if you're a pretty decent guy or girl, or whether you're Adolf Hitler or somebody like that, if you fall short in one area, you fail to make it. See, the law is kind of like this chain. This chain works well because of the length of it. Now, if this chain breaks in one spot, the chain fails to function as it's supposed to function. Does that make sense? One spot, not five, just one. Now, if we broke it in five, it would have the same effect. But if we broke it in one, if one link breaks, the whole chain breaks down. James says, if, one, if, you, if you keep all of the laws except for one link, you're as guilty as a person who has broken all of God's laws. See, the standard of perfection, the standard of getting into heaven is perfection. 
because God is 100% holy and he cannot be in the presence of sin. And there is sin in our lives. So you have to be perfect. But guess what? Here's the bad news. No one is perfect. That, can, that creates kind of a conundrum, a problem, don't you think? In fact, it, it, I'll, I'll take it a step further in, 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 uh, in according to what Paul revealed in Romans chapter 6. He said this, that the wages or the payment of falling short of the law is death. The wages of sin is total separation from God. Not just physical death, but also spiritual death. That is a huge problem. Let me, let me say something really quick. If you don't don't understand the bad news first, see, Christianity doesn't make sense without understanding the the problem that we find ourselves in. In fact, it doesn't really speak to us at all unless we understand the terrible situation that you and I find ourselves in. We have fallen short of God's glorious standard. And it's only when we understand our terrible situation, our predicament, that we can begin to appreciate and fully understand the magnificence of the good news of the gospel. You with me? Listen to what Romans chapter 5, verse 6 says. When we were utterly helpless. See that phrase right there? That describes my situation and your situation. No amount of personal goodness could ever earn me God's favor. One broken law makes me as guilty as someone who's broken all the laws, and there's nothing I could ever do to make God love me. I'm utterly helpless. But just when we were utterly helpless, watch this, Christ came. (laughs) What powerful words. Christ came at just the right time, and died for who? For who? For us, for sinners. That's the gospel. When there was nothing that you can do to earn God's favor, no way to uh, to earn eternal life, Christ comes on the scene and dies for sinners. In in a letter to the the Galatians, like some Christians in, in Galatia, Paul explained what that meant. He said this in Galatians chapter three, but Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced on us by the law. Remember what the law does, the law reveals reality. The law reveals how sinful we are, right? It convicts us as sinners. Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced on the law. When he hung on the cross, he took upon himself the curse of our wrongdoing. If you've ever seen the movie The Passion or something like that, you've seen a a crucifixion scene. You've seen Christ stretch out his arms. You've seen the blood. You've seen the nails go through his hands. I'll spare you the details. I won't show you any photos today. What happened on the cross was that all of the wrongdoing, all of the sin of the human race was put on him on the cross. The curse of the law was placed on Christ, which is why when he was on the cross, one of the things he said was, my God, my God, why have you, say it with me, forsaken me? God the Father turned his back on the Son because the sin of the world was placed on Christ and God could not look upon the Son of God. Was it his sin? No, it wasn't his sin. Whose sin was it? Our sin was placed on Christ. He rescued us from the curse of the law. That's powerful. Could could we ever praise God enough for what I just said? Could we ever? Are there lips that could praise God enough for the redemption and the rescuing of the human race? You as an individual. It's truly life-transforming truth. But however good the root crucifixion is, it it wasn't enough. In your notes, I want to show you something. 
Christ's death on the cross was actually not enough. If you know the story, they're, they're ha- good for, the story doesn't end on Good Friday when Christ dies, when he says it is finished on the cross. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't enough. You see, a guy named Joseph of Arimathea came on the scene. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, which was the religious council. And he went to Pilate, and he said privately to Pilate, I would like to have the body of Jesus. And he did it secretly because he knew that if he, if he came out publicly and said that, all of his fellow you know, religious priests would condemn him and his life would never be the same. Pilate agrees to give Joseph the body and he takes the body and he puts it in a freshly carved out tomb. And this got all the religious leaders upset. They were upset because they, what, what was threatening their lives was, was this reality that they could lose their power, they could lose their influence, they could lose their relationship with Rome. If, if Jesus somehow turns up you know, missing at some point and a story gets told about you know, his resurrection and that's what Jesus was saying, things could be a lot worse. In fact, I want to read you what they said to Pilate in Matthew chapter 27. So we request that you seal the tomb until the third day. This will prevent his disciples from coming and stealing his body and telling, that, telling everyone that he was raised from the dead. If that happens, we'll be, things will be worse now than they were at first. If this story gets out that, his, that he rose from the dead, it'll be crazy. People will start following him. We'll lose our power. We'll lose our authority. Rome will have to come in and take power back. And so they said to Pilate, give us, give us a guard so we can guard the tomb so that no one can steal the body. So Pilate agrees. But you can't stop the power of God, can you? I mean, if it's God's will to raise Christ back from dead, do you think some guards are going to stop him and keep that stone sealed up? No way. Watch what happens in Luke chapter 24, three days later. But very early on Sunday morning, when the women went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, they found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance, so they went in, but they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. Why didn't they find the body of the Lord Jesus? Because he what? He rose from the grave. This is such an important part of the story. If Christ had stayed dead, we would have no forgiveness of sins. We would still be guilty of our sins. In fact, Paul said so himself in a letter to the Corinthians 30 years later. Watch what he wrote in 2 Corinthians 15. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is what? Your faith is worthless. It's useless. It's void of power. It doesn't mean anything. And on top of that, you're still guilty of your what? Of your sins. There's no forgiveness. There's no redemption. There's no eternal life. If Christ stayed in the tomb, if he did not rise from the dead, Christianity is meaningless. If we deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have no faith at all, is what Paul is saying. And so here we are on Easter Sunday morning celebrating what? Not Good Friday, but we're celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when he rose from the dead, he finished the work of your redemption, redemption making it possible for you to obtain what you could not obtain in and of your own strength, and that is eternal life. Now, have a thought with me really quick as we wrap this up. Do you think that all of what I just talked about and explained, the the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus and all that stuff, do you think all of that took place so that you and I can sit here today and try to be good people? Hey, I have an idea. Just obey the law and try to be good. And in the end, when you die, maybe, perhaps, if God is fair, he'll lend you into heaven. 80% of Americans believe that. Many of you walked in today believing that, man, if I died, probably go. Pretty good guy, never killed anybody. Pay my taxes. You know, try to tell the truth. There's that one time, you know. 
Really? That would make the, the, the crucifixion and the resurrection, resurrection of Jesus Christ worthless. If, if it's true that good people go to heaven and if you just try to be good, you might be all right in the end. What Christ did on the cross would be completely irrelevant. But see, it's not true. You can have eternal life. You can have God's favor. But it doesn't come the way you might think. It's a paradox. In fact, you notice the way I wrote it is this. Here's the truth. God, Christ died and rose again so that you could be made righteous by faith. Remember what it takes to go to heaven? You have to be perfect. And you and I are not perfect. If we break one law, we're as guilty as someone who's broken all the laws. We must be made righteous. Here's the question. Here's the question that every faith system has to answer. I don't care if it's the Hindu faith, the Muslim faith, the Jewish faith. I don't care what system of religion it is. They must answer this question. How will you become righteous? Because that's the standard. Christianity does it. Watch this. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him, that is Christ, who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him, when we place our faith in him, we might become what? Say it with me. The righteousness of God. Not our own righteousness. It's not that we pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. It's not that we say, hey God, watch me obey the Ten Commandments. I'm a pretty good guy. I'm a pretty good girl. No, it's when I put my faith in Christ, the one who died on the cross for me, the one who took my sins upon himself. When I place my faith in him, when you place your faith in him, it's his righteousness, not my own righteousness. It's his righteousness, his perfection that gets transferred to my account. Then God the Father looks down upon you and he looks down upon me and what does he see? He doesn't see your righteousness. He sees his light, the righteousness of his son who had no sin. He had to live this life without sin because he carried with him the seed. He carried with him the righteousness that you and I needed. And that's why Christ was perfect. So that he could give his perfection to you. So that you could, by faith, receive it. And thereby receive eternal life. And that makes sense. See, this, this, this makes complete sense. It's why I'm not a Muslim. It's why I'm not a Jewish person. I don't, it's why I'm not a Hindu. It's why I'm not an atheist. It's why I'm a Christian. Because I understand and now maybe you do for the first time, I have to become righteous. And if there's another way for that to happen, maybe I'd go for it. But as far as I know, Christianity is the only path that reveals to us how we can have eternal life. And that is through Jesus Christ our Lord. So how do you receive that righteousness? You come to church on Easter? Huh? Maybe put some money in the plate? Be a good person? How do you get that righteousness? That is the question of the universe, isn't it? John tells us. But to all who did, say it with me, receive. You ever receive something in the mail? <laughs> this comes to you. You gotta open it up, right? Have you really received it if you haven't opened it? I mean, on Christmas time, have you really received a gift if you don't unwrap that thing? You gotta unwrap it. Well, how do you unwrap it? How do you receive eternal life? Watch this. To as many who did receive him, then he explains what that means. To those who believed in his name, to them, he gave the power to become children of God. See, it is faith. It is believing in the name of Jesus and what he did for you on the cross and how he rose again on Easter Sunday morning. Some of you are like, well, I've done that. Really? Have you? Have you really received eternal life? Have you really believed in his name? I know people who say that they believe in Jesus. And, and sometimes I feel like, 
this is what they're like. They're like telling everybody here, so I believe this chair can hold me up. I really do. So, okay. I may believe that person, I may not. How can I know for sure if that person really believes that this chair can hold them up? You tell me. See? Do you believe that I believe that this chair can hold me up? How do you know that? Because you saw me sit in it, right? Several times during this talk, I sat down. So I can say, and you would believe me if I said it, I believe that this chair holds me up. I believe it so much that I'll hop on it. In fact, I might even stand on it. What do you think? Now do you believe me? Come on, this is fun. It's Easter. What if I started jumping right now? Would you believe me even more? I believe this stool will hold my weight. See that? There's some of you over here going, I believe in Jesus. I believe in Jesus. And where everybody around you and your family members and everybody's like, oh, yeah? Why don't you sit in it? Well, you just sit in it. I don't know about that. Like, then I have to, like, follow him and trust him and obey him and get all spiritual. I'd like to just say that I believe, I believe in Jesus. That's where many of you are. And you don't have eternal life. Because all it is is talk. Can we be real? Maybe today, maybe today you go, I'm going to stop talking, I'm going to start sitting. I'm going to receive the righteousness that comes from Christ by faith. I'm not going to believe one more second in my life that I can earn my way to, to heaven or try to impress God. I'm going to sit in the finished work of Jesus Christ and rest in him for eternal life and have his righteousness transferred to my account. Maybe today, on Easter Sunday, what an appropriate time for you to sit, believe, and trust in Jesus. Why did he do all this anyway? Well, I mean, who could think up this stuff? Right? Like, if you were God, wouldn't you write the story differently? Come on. Remember Bruce, remember Bruce Almighty? He tried that. He thought he could do a better job than God. Have you ever seen the one, the first one anyway? It's like, who would, who would think this up? Death, resurrection, crucifixion, all of why not? Why not just make everybody happy, God? Why does there got to be free will and sin and all this stuff? I'm telling you, I, I've thought about this very long because it's very hard. It's read, I've read a lot on this, and I'm not saying I know all the answers, and I don't. But here's what I can tell you, the re, that I believe, based on the revealed word, what is written in the word of God, that the reason why God wrote the story this way is because it was the best way to reveal his love to creatures who have free will. 1 John chapter 4, verse 9 says it this way. God showed how much he, what, say it with me. God thought up a way to, to reveal his love for creatures who have free will. And there was no better way to do it than to give us a shot at obeying. And of course, we disobeyed. And then he sent his son, his one and only son into the world, that we might have, say it with me, life, eternal life through him. The title of this series was Dying to Live. Jesus died so we could live. Maybe today is the day where you actually put your faith in him. In a few moments, I'm going to come back up here and lead you in a prayer where you can do that. You 
are dying. Ever since your first breath, you ventured closer to death. You are dying, but you are also living. I think that's a given since you're sitting there listening. The existence of both me and you is dependent on these opposites both being true. I guess that the point I'm trying to give is that here at this moment, you are literally dying to live. Have you ever thought about that? We use that expression so often, like, I'm dying to see that movie. Oh, I'm dying to go and watch it. I used to think that saying I'm dying to do that or this was quite a bit dramatic, but now I'm taken back a bit because it's actually pretty accurate. You are dying to do anything. But with Jesus, just to give us some insight, he wasn't dying to live life. No, unlike you and me, he was dying to give life. For him, an expedition was planned since birth as a rescue mission to advance through Earth on the only journey that could possibly banish a curse because he knew we were drifting, wandering astray, the creation he loves most slipping farther away. And sure, the journey would have been more lenient if the destination was more convenient, but according to his father's will, the only choice was to reach a hill. And lucky for us, he was dying to be obedient. So he carried a cross. He carried a cross like he was married to a cross, promising I'll carry you in sickness and in health until death do us part, trudging his way up so steep, his heart in a flutter as he breathes. The only thought in his mind is how much he loves you as the guard struck his knees till he stumbles into the mud at his feet. His back and legs ripped to shreds, blood covers his cheeks, a few hour beating looking more like he'd been bludgeoned for weeks but never regretting for a moment this cup he would drink. Beaten and flogged till he was unrecognizable, all to redeem a humanity that was irreconcilable. The guards mocking, laughing, with a smirk as they're asking, come on, call your God, can't he set you free? He responds, but every gasp of air he takes is reduced to a wheeze. Push forward. Don't quit, Lord. They know not what they do. Let them mock. Let them ridicule. Crush me now. Make me minuscule. My God, I'll do anything to help them see you. Frail, nearing death, tired, restless, mangled and tossed. Nails piercing flesh of his right and his left wrist. He was stapled to a cross. And as he hung from that tree, the crowds looking on, what they saw was a fragment of the man that he was. And then up at the summit, of the hill that he climbed, he mustered up the strength in his lungs as he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As all holiness flees from sight and the sin of mankind fills in the vacancy, what once was perfect is now blemished, all to make those who are worthless now sinless. The curse of every man transferred onto a slaughtered lamb as he utters the very words of his final sentence, it is finished. Let me tell you, what Easter looks like. It doesn't look like chocolate eggs and pastels. It looks like two wooden planks and three nails. Easter, it looks like a man with outstretched hands saying, this is the distance I'll go just to reach you. We spend our whole lives thirsting to find life, only to realize we've been searching with blind eyes. We try to acquire it as we seek for the next high, whether it's by getting retweets or Facebook likes or with perishing things like money or the next car that drives by, tragically deceived by a disguise like the car in a drive-by. 
completely caught off guard, deceitfully caught by a fraud. Our attempt for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is like we're reaching for a falsified God. Listen, you are dying. While there is a war you are fighting, an adversary whose objective is to make you the one on whom you are relying. The sole purpose of the cross was to tell you, stop trying. Ever since your first breath, you were dying to live, and with his last breath, he was dying to give you perspective that the only one you were built to rely on is him. This cross, it has no meaning unless you live out the message his life tells, that true life is only found if you die to yourself. So the question is, are you dying? the world see more than it now its promises free of water and wine I emptied the cup and found myself wanting but there is a well that never runs dry the water of life the blood of the vine cause oh
Good people don't go to heaven. Perfect people do. The only problem is none of us are perfect. That's why Christ came when we were utterly helpless. Just at the right time, Christ died for sinners. He brought with him a righteousness that we need in order to go to heaven. How do you receive that righteousness? By faith. What is faith? Resting, sitting, trusting in him. Perhaps, perhaps for the first time, it finally clicked with you and you understand the gospel. And now it's time to respond. It's time to put your faith in Christ. Maybe you walked in here today thinking good people go to heaven and that's why you're going. And now you realize you were totally wrong. It's a gift that must be received. Today, you put your faith in Christ on Easter Sunday and you receive the righteousness of Christ by faith. Wouldn't that be unbelievable? Wouldn't that be much better than Easter egg hunts and ham? It's a decision that will impact eternity. And if you feel God tugging on your heart right now in this moment, I'm gonna lead you in a prayer. It's a prayer of faith. Reach out to him in faith and receive eternal life. It's a free gift. I'm gonna ask you to close your eyes and bow your head. In this very holy moment between you and God, say these words to him. Dear Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for me. And three days later, three days later, you rose again so that I could be made righteous by faith. So I'm trusting you right now. I'm sitting in what you did for me, trusting it, putting my full weight on the work of redemption, your death and resurrection. Cleanse my heart, wash away all my sin. I receive your righteousness by faith. Thank you for making me your child today. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. If you just prayed to to, uh, receive Christ as your Savior, our church would love to put a gift in your hands. It's a very special gift. It's the best gift I can think to give you. It's a copy of the New Testament. And there's tables in the back here to my left. If you're in the balcony, it's on the main level here. There's tables to my right and to my left, which would be your right and your left. If you'd go back there and just tell them that you prayed that simple prayer to trust Christ, they will put one of these Bibles in your hands for absolutely free. And we would encourage you to begin reading. I love this particular version of the New Testament because it's broken down into little five-minute readings. It's not overwhelming. You get the Word of God flowing through your mind and heart. And God reveals His will. He begins to transform your heart as you read His Word. One other thing, as you're back there, I want to make mention to you, for those of you who just put your faith in Christ, maybe today or maybe last weekend or the weekend before, we have a, a four-week short-term group set up for you called Starting Point. It starts May 8th and goes through May 29th. It's basically an opportunity for you to get around a group of people who, who just put their faith in Christ. You, you can begin to have discussions about what it looks like to follow Christ, the challenges, the difficulties, the joys. And basically, it's a safe place for you to have questions answered and basically explore the Bible in the context of community. So I encourage you as you go back there, you can also, you can grab your Bible. You can also start, uh, sign up for starting point. Can we give God glory for what he's done today on Easter?
For those of you here today, you already have a relationship with Christ. What you heard today is something powerful that you can share with 80% of the people you're going to run into who think. This is what they think. If you ask them, are you going to go to heaven when you die? Here's what they think. Well, sure. And the reason I'm going to go is because I'm a pretty decent person. You can use what you heard today as a conversation starter to help those folks who believe that to see that it's not about being a good person. It's about receiving righteousness. And the only source of righteousness that we have is Jesus Christ himself. Do it gently and do it with love. Okay? Is that a good plan? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to stand up here. And I did my best today to try to explain the truth of the gospel. I pray that you take the words that were spoken today, the scriptures that were read, the songs that were sang, and produce the change in our hearts that you desire. I pray that the gospel would go out all across Indiana and even across the world through our church. And we will give you all the glory and all the honor. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Hey, our family's headed out to Nicaragua right now, so pray for safe travels. We'll be back next week. God bless.